Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com slash twip. This week on Twip, Canadians invent digital photography, Ralph Lauren creeps us out, and despite chainsaws and the angry Skype gods, episode number 111 is about to begin. another week of This Week in Photography. Uh, hey, that doesn't bit... sound like Fred. No, it certainly doesn't. <laughs> in fact, we're not sure where Fred is at the moment. We've had a little bit of a, of a strange morning. Um, we started our show in a normal fashion this morning, and PG&E out in California began promptly sawing up a large tree in Fred's front yard so he couldn't hear himself think, much less us hear him. So, uh, Oh, my God. Well, I hope a branch didn't fall and hit him on the head or something because uh, we've been trying to get him this last little while and uh, nothing. Well, the three of us have decided to wing it this week, and the three of us would be, uh, I'm Aaron Mailer here in Sweetbriar, Virginia. Um, got Steve Simon up in New York. Hey, guys. And Lisa Bettany is joining us from what part of Canada again? Vancouver. <laughs> Beautiful Vancouver. Beautiful sunny Vancouver right now. Wow. Enjoy it while it lasts, because not very long. <laughs> the third winter is coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Yes. <laughs> Well, I will mention uh, at the top of the show here that our show this week is brought to us by Squarespace.com, who's our sponsor and the host of our blog as well. And uh, if you'd like a free trial and 10% off the your account at Squarespace, go to Squarespace.com slash TWIP, that's T-W-I-P, with offer code T-W-I-P. So starting out with the news, we have a very Canadian slant in the news this week. You want to take the first one? Well, yeah, Canadians invented digital photography. <laughs> okay, I let, me just, let me just let me just sort of uh, uh, kind of expand on that a little bit. But of course, uh, the Nobel Prize, uh, the Peace Prize, went to Obama, but the Nobel Prize in Physics went to Willard S. Boyle and George E. Smith, um, who uh, shared the prize. And Mr. Boyle is was born in Canada, but they invented the uh, CCD, which is the um, the embryo of all digital photography, I guess. And when I read up a little bit on this, we're coming up on the anniversary. It was October 19th, 1969. So, you know, you're either listening to the Beatles or inventing digital photography. And we've got the anniversary coming up. And um, that's pretty amazing. Uh, and those guys apparently were trying to come up with some sort of electronic memory and instead came up with an image sensor. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm in awe every time I put my digital camera to the on switch and, and just marvel at uh, where the technology has come and, and what we're able to achieve with photo digital photography. Absolutely. What, what was your, your first digital camera, Steve? I mean, did you work with any of the early – one of the earliest ones I've actually had a chance to see um, at the uh, Air and Space Museum in Washington. They actually have uh, – one of the Nikon bodies that had the uh, Kodak CCD system attached to it, the astronauts used on the space shuttle. So that was cool. my first encounter with any with a, a CCD-based SLR. Well, I you know, I I remember when the Sony Mavica was announced as kind of the first digital camera, but it didn't really come out. 
Uh, for me, it was the Nikon D70. Uh, when I jumped in in 2004, uh, though being in the newspaper business and working with uh, my Canadian colleague uh, um, in my uh, city rival, I worked in Edmonton and he was in, in Calgary, Rob Galbraith, he jumped into the fray right from the beginning um, uh, of digital photography, at least in the, the photojournalism world. But uh, what about you, Lisa? Uh, I guess my first digital camera was a little Canon point-and-shoot. Um, before that, I was using my mom's old film Pentax. Um, and so, yeah, I just started with a little point-and-shoot, and I didn't get my XTI to, uh, maybe about two years ago. And that and was I sort don't. of when I started. Steve, did you feel reluctant to to join the digital movement or... Yeah, I think, you know, if I had to be honest, I probably was. I mean, I think a lot of longtime film shooters were very reluctant because, you know, you're used to a certain kind of quality and digital, you know, at its introduction, you know, didn't really come close to film. I think anyone that switched now obviously realizes just how far we've come. But, you know, the... Um, the Nikon D1, which was the first serious Nikon camera that really kind of made digital mainstream, was 2.7 megapixels, and albeit a bigger sensor, but, you know, the new iPhone is also 2.7 yeah. megapixels. Yeah. <laughs> and, and not a particularly stellar lens, I have to say. No, but I, I tell you, I'm <laughs> having fun with that lens. iPhone. I'm enjoying taking some shots with I it. I use it all the time, far more than I ever thought I would, actually, for Do photography. You do you use it, um, Steve? Do you use it as as sort of to capture moments that you wouldn't ordinarily do or, or ordinarily take, or is it just sort of? Well, I think, yeah, I think for me, Lisa, I, I've been I've been um, sort of using it as a little bit like a lot of people as a visual. I, I started out just to take picture of my parking space, you know, at the airport, <laughs> <laughs> rather than you know make a note of it, and I, and that was very useful. But I have to admit. Um, when I was at an Apple store the other day, and I think I mentioned this on Twit before, I noticed uh, a book, an Apple book published with the, the latest uh, 3G um, uh, iPhone pictures. And I was really surprised just how good the quality was. And, and that mm -hmm. for me was a, kind of a light bulb. And then I, I occasionally like will um, go out at the right time of day when the light is kind of nice. And, you know, when you use the iPhone uh, and sort of challenge myself to get sort of pictures that don't look that, that they, like they were made on an iPhone that could have been made on another camera. Um, mm -hmm. It can be done, but of course there's a lot out of your control and you miss a lot. But but as a bit of a challenge, I've been kind of enjoying it because I always have it with me. Yeah, that, that's kind of how, I mean, I started using it um, for location scouting. So just all the time as I'm walking through the city, if I see something cool, I'll just take a picture of it. And I sort of have um, created a, a library of all these different locations. And then sort of, you know, as time progresses, it's, you know, every time I see something cool, I'll, I'll take a picture. But usually, you know, people that are with me get really annoyed because <laughs> not only do I have an iPhone, <laughs> I have another camera. And it's like, oh, I need to get this with the iPhone. And like, oh, I need to get out the other camera. And now, I have to admit, just purely from a fun standpoint, I guess we should move on. But, you know, I, I, I could take, you know, a higher end uh, sort of point shoot everywhere I go. And I, I generally do. But I like the idea of the iPhone because, 
you know, if I miss it, I miss it, but I'm, I'm surprised. And it's a challenge because it's harder to work with and you don't know exactly what you're going to get. So when you do get something good, it's like, you know, it feels good and, and it couldn't really have been predicted. And that's part of the magic of photography that I, I miss a little bit, you know, so it's it <laughs> unpredictability. Exactly. I should push myself to try to be more creative when I use it, but I always find myself thinking in terms of my SLR for my real photography and, you know, when I pull out a, my iPhone or a camera phone of some sort like that, I always tend to take a more utilitarian approach to just get the shot for you know, what's in it or what I'm trying to show, and, and I don't find myself trying to be as creative with it. So, you know, I, I still remember my, my friend who went out with his uh, 5D Mark II, and, and his friend had a pinhole camera, and they both shot the same scene. And he admitted that her picture was much more interesting. It was much more atmospheric. You know, it's sort of fuzzy. And his was perfectly sharp. So, I mean, that's, I guess, also what I like about the iPhone. The fact that it's not at all necessarily technically fantastic. Right. Well, I tell you, we're going to get yelled at for listeners for diving into the iPhone already off the bat. So <laughs> we'll move on to some other controversies we have in our, in our show this week. Um, one of which is the Olympics warning a man about sharing his photos on Flickr. Uh, apparently, the IOC sent a cease and desist letter to Richard Giles, uh, who had shared a tremendous number of his photos from his three-week uh, trip in China for the 2008 Beijing Games. And uh, the IOC basically said that they control you know, all rights to everything in that regard. And I think it was the fact that he was sharing them openly and allowing people to do as they please with them that kind of got him in their crosshairs. So what are your thoughts on this? Well, I... I Lisa, I'm another Canadian connection. Richard Giles is in Ottawa, Canadian dude. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I think the IOC needs to chill, don't you? Yeah. They are just so – I mean, Lisa, you can speak to the craze that's happening uh, in Vancouver now because the Olympics are coming up there. But they are so strict. And to go this far – I mean, I understand where they're coming from. And I think the problem was that, you know, all these Olympic images have a – Creative Commons license, which legally means that people can kind of use them, and the IOC doesn't want anybody using their stuff. I mean, I, I think they're taking it too far, but what do you think, Lise? Well, I have definitely noticed an increase of uh, security around Olympic sites in Vancouver, and this sort of general feeling of, you know, there, I will definitely get yelled at if I take a picture of that. Um, I've been, like, seriously, my day would not be complete unless I'm yelled at for taking a picture of something. <laughs> and, it, it, like, I was just down in, in Yaletown, which is sort of sort of a hub downtown, and I, I was just walking down the road, and I took a picture of literally the road and part of a restaurant, and I got yelled at. What are you doing? What are you doing? By who? Yeah. By who? By... by a server in the restaurant. I'm sorry, you can't take pictures. Whoa. And I've noticed... A lot of commercial enterprises are that way, though. That's for sure. Yeah, but it was outside. I Uh, I, I don't know. I just... I'm really... I mean, I'm concerned about what's what's happening here, and I'm wondering, you know, um, whether we should go and look at our rights again and, and, you know, stand up for for being able to take pictures. I mean, I certainly want to take pictures during the Olympics, so, and I want to post them on Flickr. You know, on a related note um, to that, and I, I'm just encountering this this wording myself again the other day, 
I believe it, I can't remember if it was an Olympic event I was looking at attending or something, but there was just kind of a vague limitation saying that any cameras that were designated as looking professional would not be allowed in the venue. Exactly. Uh, and uh, I actually ran into that recently. Um, well, my wife and I are going to be taking a cruise in the Caribbean end of November. And a few of the sites that we were looking at visiting while we we're down there had similar language in the description for the excursions that, uh, you know, no cameras would be allowed that looked professional. Which, mm -hmm. you know, to me is, it could be a very bad situation if I'm down there taking my normal gear with me. You know, I don't know what's going to qualify as too professional at this point in appearance. I mean, that's, that statement really doesn't hold water. But, yeah. I, you know, I, I guess, you know, there there are pluses and minuses with this sort of digital internet-connected world. And, and you know, the, the pluses are, you know, photography is as popular as it's ever been probably in the history of photography because digital has, has made it so much easier for people to to get great results. And, and the downside of that is that, uh, you know, there's all this policing going on. And, uh, you know, at, when you're in the States, particularly in the big cities, um, you might feel funny about taking pictures in certain situations. And it's mo mostly kind of a security terrorism kind of a thing. But in Canada, when I'm back there, uh, I don't have that same feeling. And it's really disheartening to hear you, Lisa, you know, talk about your experiences. Uh, I don't know exactly where that's coming from. Why? Why? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure whether it's, it's businesses um, because there's definitely, I mean, all the businesses downtown have changed to like a handheld credit card swiper um, and there's uh, new regulations and rules. Uh, so I don't know if it's it's that, but or people protecting um, construction sites because I did yeah, take it. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, we'll see how it progresses, but obviously I'll try to p push the limits and take as many pictures as I can. Yeah. We'll see if I ended up in jail. You can bail me out. <laughs> no, but you know the, the other thing too is it, it's hard enough for people, and you know, and I do workshops all the time, and I teach and. One of the biggest things that people want to do, and that is to kind of take pictures of other people and, and, and take street photography. And it's getting and, and it's hard enough to do for a lot of people to begin with. And this really doesn't help matters any. The, the fact that uh, uh, we're, we're, we're all kind of hitting these walls in our, in our experiences with a camera in the city or just wherever we go. But uh, anyway, uh, hopefully there are kind of aberrations and common sense uh, prevails in the end. So well, continuing our saga of controversy and pain here in photography, uh, <laughs> our <laughs> next topic is the, uh, we had a lot of listeners submit this as well through two ideas um, is the criticism of the uh, Ralph Lauren photo, which I, I wasn't on last week's show. So I don't know if you all discussed this, but I think you were uh, in a, on a similar topic related to, to uh, modification of images, but uh, she's kind of being referred to as the head is bigger than her pelvis girl. <laughs> the way this uh, picture was presented. And the particular entity that I that I put in here in the news this week related to it was uh, Cory Doctorow at Boing Boing uh, discussing a takedown notice for having you know, had that image posted for fair use criticism you know, of the photo itself. And, That's ridiculous. You know, which is completely ridiculous. And I think, Steve, you added something about, okay, now we're sorry. You wanna yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a lame thing. I mean, it's corporate Ralph Lauren saying, you know, we're going to get you for criticizing this thing. And then suddenly... Uh, there's a wave over the internet and everybody's listening to this and it's the front page of Yahoo's homepage and so on. And now they're sorry that uh, they're going to be a little more responsible with retouching. You know, it, it, it's interesting on a lot of levels. Uh, last week we talked about 
one of the big commercial photographers, David Bailey out of London, said, made the statement that, you know, retouchers are more important than photographers in photography. I think what he was getting at was that the finished product that we see, even by, you know, renowned and, and, and great photographers like David Bailey, for him to make that statement says volumes about just how much images are manipulated. And, you know, this is such an obvious manipulation. But when you saw this image, Elisa, what did you think? I mean, you know, from a photographic point of view, it's, it's kind of interesting. But what is, you know, the message, you know, as a woman? I mean, what do you think? Oh, I think we, I think we just lost Lisa. Okay, we'll give it a minute, and then we'll just yeah. go, we'll go on, <laughs> and then maybe it'll just be you. We started with four, and then there was one is going to be the title of the show, I think. Yeah, we'll definitely pick up with that question if we can. Lisa's, you know, a model herself, so it'd be great to have some following the question you were asking her. All right, all right. Uh, and see if she if you notice her back. Yeah, if she comes back, we'll pull her back in. Anyway, so just as Fred is asking Lisa, who who is a model and a photographer himself, herself, uh, for a comment on the Ralph Lauren story, uh, Skype decided to throw her under the bus, and we haven't seen her yet. So um, hopefully we'll bring her back in as the show goes on. But it could be a last person standing kind of show. Lisa Tuvas are going to try and hang on through the rest of this kind of special episode of Twip here. Yeah, and the news thing, uh, Aaron, the other thing I, I threw in there, and it's not really related to photography, but it kind of reminded me that, yeah, and it's always a good reminder to back things up, and that was T-Mobile. Um, all the Psychic users apparently have lost all their information, and uh, this was a problem. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but... It's just a, a particular uh, reminder for everybody, especially if you depend on a cloud to store all your information, that even the cloud might go away sometimes. So you always got to back things up. I got to back things up better. Um, I bet you you're completely backed up completely all the time, Aaron. I hope as much as I can be. I mean, between Drobo's and other media, on-site, off-site, Backblaze, I mean, I'm mixing a lot of resources together to try and maintain backups. And I will mention, and not to take this too far down a non-photography road, but I'm a system administrator in my regular career, so I can't help but comment on this a little. Uh, the issue of uh, the cloud, I'm glad to see the debate changing a little bit this morning in the news feeds I was reading about just completely slamming the cloud concept versus, you know, even in the cloud, you have to have good backup policies. So does this reflect badly on the trend toward cloud computing or, or just on how that particular system was handled? Yeah, so, I definitely uh, think, you know, I mean, if you really think about it, I mean, it reflects badly on T-Mobile and, and their service to sort of have it that vulnerable that they're going to lose all their customers' information. You'd figure if any company, uh, a company that's got the money and could devote the resources to it, um, you know, would not allow that kind of mistake to happen. But this is life, and things yep. happen. So. Yep. It's a learning process, certainly. Well, I will take a moment here to mention our sponsor this week, uh, Squarespace, squarespace.com. It's the way to build, host, and manage your website. Um, we and TWIP have been thrilled with Squarespace, to say the least. The, the user interface on it is absolutely fantastic. Um, the, the entire design process itself, it's got an easy-to-use UI for creating and managing a website or a blog. It's optimized for both beginners and for the CSS experts, so it really fits both ends of the spectrum. And uh, there are hundreds of design templates to choose from, and, of course, you can customize any uh, to meet your needs as much as, as you like. So... Uh, I've really been impressed with it from our use here and uh, certainly have recommended it to many others who have been building their sites there as well. 
and I'm eagerly awaiting, and here comes the buzzword again, the iPhone. I'm eagerly awaiting their iPhone application that they've been uh, developing for a while, too, for Squarespace users for maintaining their sites. So looking forward to that. So, again, if, you, uh, if you're if you looking to find a home for your site, and even if you have a current blog, such as a WordPress blog, um, you can import all of that data uh, directly into Squarespace. So no credit card needed. Just try it out at their website. Um, go to squarespace.com slash TWIP, T-W-I-P, and enter the offer code TWIP for 10% off, not only on the sign-up, but I believe for the life of the account itself. Great. So a couple other news items we have here. Um, one I kind of got a kick out of. I kind of stuck it in our little bit lighter news here. But uh, a couple of newlyweds in England um, have just won a 1,500-pound judgment for what amounts to crappy wedding photos. So, Man, <laughs> yeah, I, I took a look at this this piece, and you know, this is your your worst nightmare uh, on both ends. You know, as a wedding couple and as a photographer. I mean, uh, uh, if you look at this piece, you you realize that this photographer probably has no business uh, advertising himself as a, a professional photographer. I mean, I was recently married uh, a few months ago, a couple of months ago, actually. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when a photographer gets married, uh, there's no shortage of photography because uh, we had a few friends there that are photographers. So I have still thousands of images to um, Photoshop and make myself look prettier. And Was it like a paparazzi out. event at your wedding, just constant uh, shutters and flashes? A little bit, a yeah. little bit like that. But uh, when you look at this piece and you see uh, and you feel for the couple because obviously um, you'd expect more than this. And I think what they have left is, is some of the photos that their friends and family took. And, right. and, just, and they've got this kind of world viral news story that's uh, been, been you know passing around. So they've definitely got a story to tell from their wedding. Uh, they just don't have the images to support the story. Well, actually, they do. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I imagine there's a photographer's career maybe toast at this point, too. So it'll be interesting oh, no, to no, see where no, that's going. No question. I don't think you can recover from something like this unless you have plastic surgery and, and change your identity <laughs> and go to a different country. But uh, right. but it's also, you know, it, it brings up the point because, you know, it's gotten a lot easier as photographers in terms of, you know, getting a certain technical level of of uh, product out and and you know the the whole wedding photography industry um, has become uh, uh, the whole wedding education industry has become an entity and a powerful entity because these days as editorial and commercial photographers struggle because you know the economy's tanked to a large degree and the work is not out there. The one kind of constant, if not growing, area of photography commercially is is wedding, mm-hmm. and you're seeing a lot of professionals kind of where, where they haven't looked at it in the past are looking at it now. But beyond that, you're seeing a lot of amateur photographers um, advertising themselves, taking a workshop, and becoming professionals. And you know, I suspect there's going to be even with the ease of equipment and digital and the instant uh, recognition of if things are going okay, uh, there'll probably be more of this kind of thing happening. I'm I'm guessing. How do you uh, approach wedding photography? I mean, from a personal standpoint, I do freelance photography and um, quite a bit, and. I very frequently get the question, particularly from friends or acquaintances, saying, you know, I have a wedding soon or my daughter is getting married soon or whatever, and we'd like to know if you'll shoot their wedding. And I'm always extremely leery. I mean, I, I, I do some once in a while. I generally just tell people up front that wedding photography is not my normal approach. Um, just It's such a high-stress thing to me in a lot yeah. of ways. And the only ones that I do tend to be people that I know very well that I know want something a little more documentary, a little less traditional. You know, if, if they want something more candid and, and personal, I, I will frequently do it. But, um, and I, I often will just do it as a favor for friends, but I don't, uh, 
I personally tend to shy away from wedding photography, and partly because I, I, I realize that it's a matter of expectations of the of the bride and the groom, and again, I, like I say, the stress associated with it, but also because I know there are people out there who do that very, very well, and I don't claim to be one of them. Mm-hmm. So I don't like to kind of encroach on that market at the same time, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, from my perspective, I mean, as a, a documentary photojournalist, and you're seeing this whole area of wedding photography has changed so that, you know, a lot of couples want documentary photography for their weddings. They want real images that capture the day and the spirit of the day. And, you know, from my perspective, um, I'm like all other professional photographers. I've seen certain areas of my, uh, my, my income uh, eroding, and I'm not against doing wedding photography. I think wedding photography, uh, especially for anyone interested in documentary photojournalism, encapsulates you know everything that we do, and it, it it's in one day. But that being said, um, you know I take it if I'm going to do one, and I have, I'm going to take it as serious as I do any job. And you know there's there's stress there, but you have to know that you can deliver. Sure. And and ultimately, um, you know really. Uh, it is important because um, it's that one thing, it's that one thing from the wedding that is tangible, that you can relive and, and is, is so precious, mm-hmm. um, that, that is so important. So you want the story to be captured. And, and that's why I think a lot of, um, that's why uh, documentary and photojournalistic weddings have become so popular because they're, they're so good at capturing the story of the day, and mm-hmm. you can relive, you know, the the funny things and 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 the wonderful things and the warm and the touching things, if you have a good photographer that's able to to capture the spirit of, of that day. So, um, you know, I, I I think it's it's it it is a growing area, and I think it's an opportunity for photographers, but I think you should also be realistic in terms of know what your abilities are at that moment and and charge accordingly for example i mean there are some very high-end wedding photographers that make you know twenty thousand plus a wedding and um you know what it's worth it i mean if 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 people can afford it i mean look at these weddings they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on a wedding if you're going to drop twenty thousand on a photographer you know ten years down the line you're going to have that beautiful book and you're going to have all those images and you're not going to have very much else from that day Yep. To me, again, it, it goes even beyond cost, though, is that it, it is their special day. And if that's not something that I'm doing career-wise with, you know, total focus, you know, I, I worry about fouling up their day, you know, in that regard. I respect that. I, I think yep. that's something that photographers need to, to understand, particularly, you know, it's one thing for someone to ask you as a favor. And, and they're always going to be, and more and more at weddings, uh, and when I've shot weddings professionally, um, you know, there are other D3s in the crowd mm-hmm. and 5D Mark IIs because, you know, within the wedding party, uh, with the interest of in digital photography, you're going to have photographers. And I, I welcome them. Um, but as a professional, of course, if, if someone gets in the way, you have to fix that situation because you've got a job to do. And, right. and um, you know, it's fun to go without the pressure, you know, mm-hmm. as long as they know that I'll be one in the crowd. But, you know, I, I think it's, it's wrong, really, for someone, even a friend, to ask you to do it. Um, without, you know, and give, and putting that stress on you because there's no way you can be a guest and, and, and try and capture the wedding at the right. same time. Right, yeah, but, definitely. But you, but you can just having your camera around and just playing with it from time to time, taking some shots. Mm-hmm. Rolling on to our next section, we have our current poll, um, last week's poll results and this week's upcoming poll. And the question from last week was, what is your favorite season uh, for photography? And uh, the vast majority here at 47% chose no preference that they love them all. 
but uh, falling right behind that is is autumn at 30%, and uh, summer at 8%, spring at 9%. And, uh, Steve, you had some insight. We were talking earlier about... Uh, about well, winter no, photography. great insight, but it looks like, uh, you know, the, the, the TWIP poll responders are babies. They're afraid to go out in winter because only 6% of them uh, chose winter, uh, in fairness, as their favorite, as their favorite season. Um, it's cold out there, and it's not always easy to take pictures, but certainly uh, I think if you take your camera out in winter and you're a little bit prepared for the cold, um, you will real, uh, you will yield some some great results. So um, that's that's we got to work on that. Maybe we'll do the poll next year and and see if we got more people out in the cold shooting. Got to say, snow photography does have its challenges as well. Certainly. And it does, and it does absolutely. You got to compensate for the snow. So make sure if you're shooting automatic in the snow, and you got a lot of snow in the scene, set that uh, exposure compensation to plus one, even if you're shooting raw, and uh, you'll get better results. Cool. Well, speaking of our uh, our poll last week, um, we also had a comment from uh, Walid in Saudi Arabia uh, saying that the seasons have different effects here in Saudi Arabia. So I usually focus on the time of day for outdoor photo shoots. However, we don't get an overcast from a cloudy weather, but we often get the yellow haze from a dusty weather that usually postpones the photo shoot for several days. Wow. So, yeah, that, that kind of also um, gives me a whole new perspective. And, you know, again, I'm coming very four-season centric, but... I guess for our listeners in um, you know tropical climes, you might as well just merge all those all those uh, seasons together. And for Fred in 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 where he lives, it's probably just one season. You know, right. Sunny, sunny, pretty That's much it. sunny all the time. Well, our new poll for this week um, is one Lisa and I were talking about before the show. Um, it's HDR, love it or leave it. And um, your choices here are: uh, I like my HDRs to be arty and surrealistic. Um, to me, it's not HDR unless it's totally over the top. Our HDR only works for me when it looks real, and uh, I have no opinion on the matter. So those are your four choices for the for discussion of HDR, and we have some listener questions later related to that, so the poll kind of fit in nicely. And yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting. Sorry, to, I don't mean to interrupt. I just wanted to bring up, because I know he's a listener, uh, Trey Ratcliffe, who uh, stuck in customs, and he seems to be uh, a force in, in HDR photography. And uh, I haven't really played with it yet. I'm definitely more of the realistic um, uh, type of photographer. I, I like HDR when, you know, it's it's more subtle. And I suspect, and, and maybe you might agree, Aaron, that, you know, five, ten years down the line, there'll be some sort of uh, HDR sensor in all our cameras. And we won't have to necessarily, we're going to have like a ten-stop latitude instead of a two-stop latitude. So, you know, that's where things are going. Um, I think whether, that'll, that'll be the realistic view of it, too. I mean, in terms of, it, it will be getting the ten stops closer to what the eye is going to see, probably more so than the surrealistic effect. Exactly. I would think. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, so it'll be interesting to see the um, how, how HDR endures, because I remember when Photoshop first came out, People were going kind of crazy with it. It was like a, you know, an LSD trip in terms of playing around with all the stuff, mm-hmm. being creative. And people still are, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just in terms of mainstream, it kind of died down because it was a little bit gimmicky. Mm-hmm. And, and I think HDR can be gimmicky, but can also, um, you know, be beautiful and, and fantastic. So. It's like the early days of desktop publishing. I've got 1,200 fonts. I'm going to use them all on this page. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So. Um, we will uh, lead in here, actually, for an interview. Uh, this is one that Frederick recorded uh, earlier in the week, so I'm sorry to say we don't have Fred on the show this week, but we will have him here for the interview section, and he is doing an interview with Natalie Demish. so we'll let Fred take that away. 
My guest today is Natalie DeBish. She's an artist who in many ways defies categorization, though many have tried. Uh, she's, an, she's accomplished an amazing amount in her career, especially since she just started a few short years ago, including landing Microsoft as a client and having her work appear on the cover of American Photo. Her work is among the most viewed on Flickr, and, and each photo sparks a full-on conversation in the comments. Natalie, welcome to This Week in Photography. Hello, Frederick. Thank you very much for having me on here. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. You know, you're, you, um, I got to tell you, it's early here. It's about 7.45 a.m., and uh, mm. what time is it across the pond over there? Quarter to four. So I want to let you know that it's your fault that I was up half the night looking at your photos. <laughs> I was in your <laughs> I got sucked in like I'm sure lots of people have to your oh. to your Flickr stream and I was just you know I could I couldn't break free. So That's that's good to hear, I think. <laughs> amazing work. Amazing Thanks work. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for putting it together. So so speaking of that, oh, one of the things I noticed on in your Flickr stream is the the number of views that each photo has i mean how <laughs> can, how do you explain what it was one of, one of them i was looking at had forty five thousand. one had fifty thousand views on one image how do you yeah, people, how do you explain that people do pick on me um about that but um yeah, I think it's just a combination of many things, really. I think uh, I think anybody who uses a tool like Flickr for so long is going to kind of naturally accrue um, a lot of people. I think I think the networking side of being on a site like that and kind of inputting onto other people's into other people's work and then them come back to yours over a natural period of time is going to get a lot of people um, on your Flickr feed. Um, but yeah, well. A lot of people will have their own kind of explanations as to why my work might be popular or why so many people might be looking at it. But yeah, I like to think of it as a kind of engineering over time, or maybe maybe almost absent-mindedly, because at, the, at first I just did I just started uploading pictures without really um, thinking about what it would lead to or anything, and people just came and 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 a, and a kind of fan base, if you like, kind of accrued over time. But yeah, I don't know. Num the numbers are quite um, are quite high. But I think Flickr itself is a very popular site as well, and a lot of people um, are using that more and more to share their images. Yeah, so, yeah. let's talk about that a little bit. So a couple of things. Uh, the, the, I had an interview with an artist, uh, uh, another photographer by the name of Rebecca, and she's also yeah. she's also on Flickr, and she's also very popular, and she's a self-portrait self artist as well. Yeah. Um, and and reading through your essay, you touched on some of the topics that she actually touched on in the interview that she and I talked about in terms of how do you how do you gauge popularity or or, or is the popularity of your work or in your Flickr stream due to the fact that you're you know the pretty girl that's taking pictures of herself and putting them online, um, or is it something else? So I wanted to I know you def you went through that in this great blog post on your blog, and I I encourage people to go read it. But I wanted you to just talk to that a little bit because you explained it very well. Hmm. Yeah. I think. Um, uh, well, Rebecca was one of my uh, first inspirations when I came on to Flickr. Mm. I won't even try and pronounce her surname, but yeah. Um, but because yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> Um, I did listen to the interview you had with her, which was very interesting, um, and, and and yeah, it's 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 a big topic, and it's one that most of the time, up to now, I've not really known how to answer without sounding like I'm just kind of 
I don't know, making an ex a kind of selfish excuse for, for who I am and what I do, and I won't, I won't do what I want because I'm an artist and yeah. in terms of making pictures of myself. But um, the more I thought about it, and indeed in the blog post that you read where I um, talked about how I presented myself at Photocamp in Bradford, um, in, in here in England, um, I think I've started to get better at articulating myself on the topic without sounding like too defensive or, or too kind of, um, um, I don't know, kind of scared of what people think. Yeah. And that is this idea that when people do ask you about um, the issue of whether it's easy to take pictures of your young, um, arguably attractive female, uh, it's it's... It starts off with, a, first of all, a very basic positioning, which is the person who can ask a question like that is somebody who's invariably um, not that person, so somebody who is a, maybe an older male who doesn't use himself as a su as a subject. Yeah. But like on Flickr, for example, not to not just not just Flickr, but because it's a site I use a lot, on Flickr I've noticed that there are a lot of young women who are taking images of themselves. And um, they wouldn't ask each other that same question because they, they are young, young women themselves. So in a way, in order to ask that question, you know, is it an easy job, you have to be, um, you have to be somebody else, you have to be invariably uh, an older man. Yeah. So I think that the first question is appropriation. The first question, the first question is what we're used to seeing in photography and by whom. Um, and we're used to seeing images that, when, when we see images of women, of attractive women, they're usually taken by um, by famous male photographers in the in the uh, imaging industry, um, and then we're not used to the idea of a woman who takes pictures of herself and then gets the credit for the work that she's created, because no one really would say that for example, images in a fashion magazine taken by a famous male photographer that he had somehow an easier job or that you know his work is somehow invalid because these these models are so attractive so i think the question is one of appropriation and, and is one of what we're used to and what we're not used to and things being new and challenging because more and more women like myself are taking pictures of ourselves yeah that's very true and i think i think you hit it the nail right on the head there the, the people or the 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 demographic we'll say of the folks that are that are calling that out are the ones who can't do it so it's you know, it, it's probably maybe it just boils down to plain old jealousy. You know, look at Natalie; <laughs> she's got sixty thousand views on that shot, and I will yeah. never—I will never be able to take a photo of myself that gets sixty thousand views. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, and, and and the thing is that when people do ask me, you know, do you think you would have had so many views or whatever, so much popularity? The question—the answer is well, no. But there's kind of like. Um, there definitely is a, an appeal in my images because I might present myself in, a, in an attractive way in my images, but there's a kind of like futility to saying what, like what you've just said um, that a lot that a lot of people say, um, would I get that many views on my picture? The answer is no. But in the process of making that statement, they're almost expressing a kind of antagonism towards you for doing it, because in a way, yeah, you, you have you've done it and you've got you've got all these views, and it probably is because of reason x and x but there's kind of like um a hostility towards towards a woman who does do that whereas you know she she almost is kind of turning the tables and getting the attention for herself which i think is something that people are, well certain people yeah like you say are a little bit jealous of yeah but it's not you know for the folks who haven't seen your work yet i would encourage them to check out your blog and check out your Flickr stream and wherever else just google you but the you know i think 
it it's not just a matter of you could you could easily discern by just listening to his conversation that oh she just, she just takes all these snapshots of herself and you know and puts them online and it's narcissistic and but when looking at the work it doesn't matter that you took the photos you know i when i was looking at the work it, the photos were just their art you know and they're just it's just brilliant pieces and the fact that they're self-portrait at least in my opinion they're self-portraits um, is secondary to the fact that I'm looking at this stunning piece of, you know, whether it's a composite or otherwise, and it's just, you know, I could see it hanging giant on the wall somewhere. The fact that the artist herself created, you know, or took the, or the, the subject took the photo is almost secondary to me. Mm. Yeah. So then let's talk a little bit about um, the history, you know. So how long, how long have you been in photography uh, or, or compositing and doing all the kind of work that you're doing. How long have you been doing this? Um, properly since 2006, so just just over what uh, three and a half years that's, now. That's amazing. So <laughs> in, in just three and a half years, you've taken your career from essentially nowhere to being uh, a name, a recognized name in the in the industry, and having the cover of photography magazines. How did you do it? Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but <laughs> but um, it just seemed to kind of uh, come out of nowhere. I mean, without kind of sounding sounding complacent or resting on my laurels now in terms of having a career, um, but I am, however, at the moment, kind of making a living from photography. So I'm pleased to be able to say that at least so far that that has that has happened, and that's only since uh, February, um, because before that I was still in my studies. Uh, doing English and media at university, mm-hmm. so I got into photography whilst on the on the side for my degree in my spare time. So it really was like um, something I developed um, a passion for on my own initiative, and then um, and, and largely due to the photo sharing and the way in which you could share your work with with people. And I, I literally started sharing my work from day one of of starting to create it, and and I wasn't really aiming for anything to. In doing so, I just literally had a passion and curiosity for it, which I think is 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 an important kind of point because I didn't have a set goal or do things the way you technically should do them. I just played about with them in a way that I found personally interesting. And then when I noticed the comments and the popularity, um, in inverted commas there, coming in on Flickr, that's when I started to think, right, well, maybe I've got something here going. And I, you know. Um, when I was little, I did want to be have a dream of becoming an artist, and and I I do like the idea of creating. I've always kind of been creative, so I think subconsciously it was something that I wanted to go into. But it became more and more conscious as this three-year period went on. Um, but certainly, I didn't think that I would come out of my degree and you know be able to make a kind of full-time living from it. But that's the way it seems to have happened um, because of what the internet exposure has catapulted. Uh, the opportunities um, into and the exhibitions and the publicity is, is is kind of starting to pay off, which I didn't expect, and I'm still kind of in disbelief over a little bit. Um, but yeah, that that's the way it seems to be happening, and more and more I'm I'm realising the importance and the kind of relevance of of being able to share your work online and the fact that it does reach a physical external world and it's not all kind of away with the fairies and and nothingness hype. It can actually mean something. Yeah. 
Now, I would say that you are in a unique position, or maybe not unique, but at the top of the pyramid in terms of being able to comment on Flickr. So because you have so much traffic on Flickr and you've seen so many comments on Flickr, I would say that you're an authority there. So my question for you <laughs> is... Um, you know, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of conversation back and forth on this week in photography and and elsewhere about the uh, the tone of the comments on Flickr seem to be overly positive. Um, can you talk mm-hmm. a little? Can you talk to that a little bit? Um, in in terms yeah. of is it is it helpful for you know people to strictly adhere to the rule? If you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. Or or yeah. is, is it better to be harsh? That's really interesting. Um, debate and I've kind of battled with that over over the three years I've been on, on that site um, yeah it's difficult I mean I've, I've, I've always kind of I have kind of various conflicts in my head regarding it because on one level I do think that if you don't have anything nice to say you shouldn't say anything at all the kind of you know thing that your mum would say mm-hmm. um, but yeah because I, I think I think definitely that applies in that when people do write negative comments, in my experience, um, on, on my pictures on Flickr, I've always found that they're invariably um, put in a condescending or a rude way. I've, I've rarely come across somebody who can write something that's critical but um, but not rude. Um, and that's I think that's why when somebody does write um, a critical comment that's also rude and people antagonise that comment, other people come in and, and defend the person whose work that, that's being discussed. Um, the, the commenter then takes it upon takes the impression that people don't like uh, this antagonism when actually it's most likely the tone in which they're delivering it that's the problem um, um, but I have come across people who who can deliver constructive criticism that's put in an articulate and a kind of um, polite way and those comments are always welcome um, but then there still begs the question you know what somebody who puts their work on Flickr what do they want do they want people just to see it or do they actually want feedback in terms of what can be improved? And then if you are asking for kind of room for um, comments on improvement, then it all depends on somebody's personal opinion. And I think what the big question here is, um, is whether photography is being kind of posited as an art or as a skill. So the people who are doing photography, um, putting photography on Flickr, and they actually want to get better in terms of photography being a skill, then they and they might even write on, under their pictures, you know, uh, feedback wanted, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the person who wants to produce art and then just puts it on Flickr and wants people to see it. And I think I'm more in the latter category. Um, then I think those people aren't don't necessarily want any kind of feedback that's based on the opinion of the commenter. You know, I would have preferred different crop or I would have preferred it if you'd done this, that or the other. Um, so, yeah, it is, it is a big debate. And and even though I do generally fall into that, that second category, somebody who just likes to do images and show people and if you like it, tell me, and if you don't, then there's lots of other stuff to look at. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I don't kind of... Um, I don't discourage anybody from coming on my work and, and, and saying what they don't like about it or, you know, I wouldn't kind of beat them down with sticks. And although sometimes you can let it go to your, um, you can take it personally if somebody doesn't, if somebody writes something negative. I think, I think at the end of the day, I don't mind the comments that, um, I, I really don't mind people coming onto my pictures and, and saying what they don't like about the images. I think it's great that people can express their opinion and, and the fact that Flickr offers this 
offers its democracy, if you like. But I think the people who make the comments have to be careful that they're not kind of making it seem as if they're doing it for another reason, you know, to be kind of seen by other people or to try and attract attention to themselves. So they've got to consider that for themselves. Yeah. And, and no, I mean... No, no, go ahead. Uh, uh, but it is also problematic as an artist as well because you do start to think, well, I can put anything on the internet and, and, and a certain group of people will come forward and say they love it. And the, there are a lot of sickly comments going around on Flickr about you know, you're awesome, you're amazing, you know, not just the piece of work, but the person. The person becomes God almost to these to certain groups of people and that becomes a little bit overbearing and sometimes it's nice to just step away from the internet and, and really consider why you're doing a piece of work and do it for yourself and not not subconsciously for your viewers. Yeah. Well I think it's it's fuel as well. I mean you know, every let's face it, everybody likes to hear good things about their work. Yeah. Uh, and and I would, you know, I think it would be encouraging to get comments and positivity lavished on you, and I will push you on to the next level. But you know, yeah. but, but it takes a very strong person not to get jaded by that and to take it with a grain of salt and say, you know, uh, <laughs> it, maybe all this isn't true, and maybe I can't, <laughs> I can improve. You know, maybe I'm not floating. You know, <laughs> but, but yeah, I think it's it's an interesting world. I think as people learn more about Flickr and get deeper into Flickr um, and social media and sharing their work online, uh, certain patterns will emerge in terms of how best to do it and what to pay attention to and what not to. Yeah. So to Flickr, you know, continuing on that that vein, um, not to not to belabor it, because I know your work is is in in other places as well, and I want to get to that in a second. But um, tips for photographers that are just starting to put images on Flickr, or maybe they have a Flickr account they've had for several years and haven't enjoyed the the success and the traffic that you have. What would you what tips would you give them to to boost the traffic if that's what they're looking for to their images or or, in other words, how best to use Flickr? Hmm. Well, I think my tips would kind of fall into two categories. One that was um, literally about how to use the site, and the other group of tips, which is more about kind of conceptually, as an artist, how how to kind of drive yourself and, and what to try and um, ignore and what to pay attention, but what to pay attention to. So the first tips might involve things like I mean, when I first went onto Flickr, I was aware that if you commented on other people's work, um, then it would kind of be putting your name out there and people might click on your name. And whilst I never did that in in its most kind of superficial sense of the word and sense of the act, I would literally comment on people's work that I really liked. Um, so I'd spend time looking, browsing for Explorer and finding pictures that I liked and, and favouriting images. And that tends to kind of, you know... Um, people see your name and they might click and return a favour and, and comment on your own work. But I quickly kind of got bored of that because, you know, if there's someone someone's work that I like, I might add them as a contact, but it's not the most it's not the best way to bring people to your stream really. I think I think um what I'd be tempted to do is give tips that were more about how to be as an artist and that is to produce concentrate on producing work that is that is very personal and very different and conscious of trying to be different from everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, but in the article that you said you read on my blog mm -hmm. to do with what, my presentation at Photocamp Bradford, um, I raised this issue about kind of how somebody who's, who, shared, who shares their work on Flickr, like myself, or on any kind of 
website. Um, somebody who shared their work on a website from day one of creating work, the actual work might start to become a little bit different um, in that I could call myself a kind of web-born artist because um, the work I've produced has been affected by the medium through which I've shared it. So um, you could say that my work, at f when you view my work at thumbnail size on the screen, it's it's appealing um, compositionally, even at that kind of tiny postage stamp, postage stamp dimension. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people, I think the people whose work is most popular on Flickr are people who have kind of subconsciously or consciously um, t taken a grasp of how to produce images that are really appealing at thumbnail size because when you go into Flickr you, you see all these thumbnails and you've got to click on them before you see any, anyone's picture bigger and then even then it's only kind of postcard size on the screen so generally the pictures that are going to be popular are those that are colourful and impactful and, and maybe quite a simple composition and very striking and, and there's a certain type of Flickr photograph um, which is which has been kind of described in the press, actually, you know, kind of camera that uses, uh, sorry, the kind of picture that uses um, modern digital cameras and kind of boosted colours. And I think all that goes hand in hand with the digital photography and the processing um, of kind of modern scene and Flickr goes hand in hand with that. Yeah, so my work could definitely, sorry, um, my work would definitely be construed as, as um, different in its actual um, language, media language. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm looking at I'm looking at your set of 600 plus faves right now. I'm looking at the the, the thumbnail view. You know, the first page. Yeah. There. And you're right. I mean, it's it's definitely the the thumbs are are drawing me into because yeah, I can tell. Oh, I really want to click on that one next, and I really want to see this one. Whereas, you know, if if it's if it was if they were composed differently or composed without. Um, Maybe it just goes back to just plain old composition. You know, if your if your composition is strong, then the image is going to be strong, and the thumbnail will be strong with a strong subject, uh, so to speak. Yeah. You know, the other thing that was interesting that I read about you was, or, or in your your post, was you were talking about, you know, just the same thing you just said. You know, with the the, the composing for the thumbnail. But in my mind, I was thinking, what a stark contrast to, um, in the olden days. You know, where where the photographers were the whole goal was to get a gallery show and have gigantic mm -hmm. images on the wall, mm. you know, and if you've done that and you can walk around and have, you know, cheese and bread and talk about your work, <laughs> then you've made it, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, but, you know, you contrast to that, contrast that to what you're saying and it's, it's the thumbnail in terms of composition and, you know, and a postage-sized photo is probably how people are going to view your work going forward. So, yeah. You want to talk about that a little bit? So take take us out of the Flickr world and into the you know the atom-based world of galleries. You know, how do you feel about having you know, and have you had a gallery show yet? And is that an aspiration of yours? Oh yeah, I mean, um, I, yeah, I've had a, I had my first exhibition in two thousand six, which was um, sorry two thousand seven, which was exactly a year after I started sharing my work on Flickr and. Since then, I've had more exhibitions um, in Europe and and also in America this year and next year. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's really interesting what you're saying because that's something that's becoming another kind of conflict in my head. Um, the conflict between the kind of um, interesting web-sized thumbnails versus the um, huge images that you want to blow up, um, print really large, and put in galleries and and have um, images that are more kind of um, 
an interesting experience at a large size. And because I'm becoming more and more involved with galleries and um, I want to be able, basically be able to make my prints much bigger, um, at kind of 83 by 125 centimetres. And in order to do that, I've got to, with the current camera that I have, I've got to be very careful to produce an image that has been carefully lit and also hasn't had too much post-processing done to it. So with my most recent images, which you can see on Flickr on my site, I've, um, I've done different, uh, I've gone through different methods to be able to achieve that. Mm -hmm. and um, and there is definitely when I'm processing a picture a conflict between oh I want to crop it I want to I want to make this brighter I want to do this but I'm aware that that's going to ruin the image by cropping obviously you're, you're literally chopping away the quality of your image so you can make it look really snazzy at thumbnail size but when it comes to printing the image you're it's, it's probably going to be very um, it's probably going to have uh, you know areas of, of um, bad resolution yeah. when um, when you print it or even when you just view it so so yeah I've, I've, I've kind of getting to that problem stage where I'm, at, I'm starting to upload images that are maybe not so attractive at thumbnail size or, or just less kind of less over the top in terms of um, kind of impactful composition yeah so are you uh, finding are you finding that you have that you're you have to make the choice now when you're when you're creating yeah. one of these that you know is this is this going to go to print or is this, am I just going to show this online and you know, in the, that you're saying that affects your your overall decision making when you're when you're creating the piece. Um, uh, kind of everything, yeah, really. And when I'm thinking about uh, creating an image, and also when I'm processing it, as I say, it's only in the last maybe five or six images that have been posted to Flickr and my website that I've ha that I've started to you know actively think about this. And um, sometimes it's a case of cropping the image. Um, in one way for the web, but keeping the whole thing, whole image, um, ready to print if it were to be used in a show. So actually having two versions of the same image. But, for example, my recent image that I've just put on Flickr today um, is an image that I'm trying to kind of keep at its full dimensions for both the web and and print. Um, and it's it's not the dullest picture, but it's not the most impactful composition out of the ones out of the images um, on my Flickr stream. Yeah. But I find that because of the because of the, the the network that I've got on Flickr, and because there are a lot of people who've added me as a contact in the three years, last three years, there's still you know a good chance of people coming along and and seeing the work and and commenting. So the views and the comments aren't necessarily suffering, but I suppose I'm kind of diluting them a little bit by by going down the other, the other avenue, which is paying attention to the way a picture will print. And it is a big problem, and I know a lot of other people on Flickr are having the same problem, and, and I've been kind of sharing with them um, my own thoughts on the issue, and they've been sharing their own kind of uh, difficulties in, in, in how to make the compromise. Yeah. So, you know, going down that path a little bit um, and just talking about the the how the work is created um you know i'm looking at i'm still i'm still enthralled with your work and i'm still going through <laughs> through images as we're talking here um, <laughs> and what strikes me is your amazing command of photoshop and and how you can wield it to do whatever it looks like whatever you want it to do and of course mixing that with the with the photography skills can you talk a little bit about how what your process your compositing process is and and how you're you're putting these these works together yeah, um, when I present on my work, 
uh, actual physical events and shows, I found it really appropriate to talk about my work in terms of three categories, because people invariably ask me how long I spend on my images. And whereas I might have spent up to, you know, five hours processing one image, I might have spent ten minutes on, on another. So I don't want them to be misled and to think that, you know, Photoshop is my world, full stop. Yeah. So these three categories are basically the first one might be just images that have literally had a tweak of work in Photoshop that have been composed completely in camera that are what I like, like to think are kind of proof that I can take a good picture in the camera and not necessarily have to pay um, spend a lot of time in the post-production. And the second group would be images that are kind of had a little bit more work done to them, but compositionally they're not kind of far off from the original. Um, and they may have had some kind of layering work in them to add some kind of dramatic effect. But the third category is, I think, the category of images that I enjoy the most or maybe that I initially got into photography because of, and that are, those are the composites, you know, the images that have had uh, quite a, a high level of, of compositing, as in layering, done to them, and they look very different from the original shots, and they, they mostly involve a, a series of shots to, to achieve the final illusion, and that, that would include the um, clone images that I created, and also the trick images where I might be falling or, or flying, um, and a lot of the kind of fantasy composites that that are on my stream as well. Mm -hmm. So, so um, I'm looking at one of them now, and it it, it looks like you're Spider Woman, and you're climbing a wall. <laughs> how, yeah, how? Take me through that one. What, what was your process for building that shot? Well, um, that's an example of a, of an image that takes a series of shots. Um, to put together. So on one level, it is complex, a more of a complex exercise. It's not just one shot, but it's a few of them that have been taken with particular thought and care in order to composite them and create this illusion that I'm climbing up the wall. But on another level, it's one of the most simplest kind of composites that I have done yeah. in that I didn't use any particular aids to help me. Um, on some of my trick images, I've used tables and chairs and even assistance of my boyfriend. But in this one, I literally just did a, a clever... Um, and quite quick as well, um, series of shots by fixing the camera on the tripod in a fixed position so it doesn't move and taking a blank picture of, of uh, the wall with nothing, without me in it. And then just, um, so literally putting one leg and then the other leg and then the position of the head and then taking all these, I think, four shots in total into Photoshop and um, and just kind of cleverly putting them together, but quite a quick one. I think it was one of my, maybe my first or second attempt at doing a, what I call a, a trick or whatever, levitation image. Um, but very easy, put together and then, and then just cropped, and then just cropped to kind of give the final thing some um, some different kind of presence. Yeah, but it's a, it's a brilliant shot. Um, and uh, just a, a couple more questions. Um, I'm looking at the shot of, uh, I think this is the shot that appeared on the cover of American Photo. Can you, can you, can you talk a little bit about this shot? Is that the one with me on the couch? That is the one with you on the couch, yeah, yeah with the pop art on the wall. The, yeah. the Lichtenstein portrait, portrait on the wall. Yeah, that's quite an, um, an odd one, really. I don't really know kind of... Um, where exactly what was what exactly I was doing with that picture? <laughs> um, <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> well, um, uh, I um, I used to do I used to use a lot of outdoor locations in my early pictures, but when I moved into my new flat, I was 
tempted to using that more as I lived in a kind of more urban area. So that was kind of one example of me using my tidy, it was tidy on that day, uh, flat to, to shoot some kind of interesting self-portrait. Um, and on my blog, actually, I did a little post about it, about the kind of four different inspirations that went into the image. But they were inspirations that I kind of identified after I'd taken the image. Um, and they were four different people from Flickr, Rebecca, Merkley, Celia, and uh, I can't remember the other one. But, yeah, um, Merkley is kind of renowned for his use of women on couches, and Rebecca, there was an image of her in a bikini kind of standing in this Icelandic landscape, and Celia uh, was an image of her sat at a table with a piece of fruit. So I kind of put all these images into, into kind of a mixing pot and produce this image where I'm kind of lying on the couch. And it was kind of interesting because it isn't a composite at all. It's just literally, you know, a shot that's almost straight out of camera, but with with a bit of cleaning up in Photoshop. And I was kind of interested by the way that my body came out in the image. It looked very kind of cartoon-like, and it looked like it was drawing a parallel with the Lichtenstein on the wall. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, kind of like a... A kind of supine superhero kind of look to it, yeah. which was <laughs> which was kind of um, unintentional, but maybe subconsciously intentional, and and the use of fruit as well, just as a kind of um, I think maybe the three layers in the image is what kind of drew me into it afterwards and and made me want to share it with other people. Now, is this image a composite or is it is it just a straight shot? Uh, just a straight shot. Gotcha. Yeah. So Natalie, what's what's next for you? What's uh, you've you've conquered the world already. What what are you gonna do next? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm kind of uh, a bit confused, but also excited because I find that, um, as you were saying, this 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 idea of labeling. I'm not sure really what label to give myself and whether I need to give myself a label and and whether I should just keep. You know, pe some people tell me to just keep doing what I'm doing and. And other people are telling me, you know, how to get, how to be an art photographer. And other people are telling me how to be a commercial photographer. And I don't really know what I am and where I'm going. And I find that, um, I find that this is a case of a lot of a lot of people that I've seen use the web in the, in a similar way as me. Um, in that they they might have a predominant kind of role. There might be, you know, an art photographer or a fashion photographer or a portrait photographer predominantly. And then they might have a smattering of all other kinds of things kind of entering their lives, especially through um, sharing their stuff on the web has kind of led, led to all kinds of different things. Um, I would probably call myself predominantly an art photographer, but, um, but also I've done commercial work and I've done portraits for other people. So, again, there's that mix and that blend of all these other things going on. Um, I think I think the main thing for me is is pursuing just creating images and, and exhibiting them and, and hopefully continuing to sell them as prints. Um, but at the same time, I'm really interested in getting involved with taking pictures um, for other people's commercial purposes and taking pictures of other people, generally just opening my mind up to other subjects. Um, and, and yeah, just and also getting involved with other media as well. You know, I'm really interested in, in doing something with film. Um, recently, I collaborated with a sculptor, which was really interesting, and in producing a kind of photograph that was projected onto um, onto a 3D um, cast of myself, which was you know thinking outside outside the box a little bit, outside of the 2D. That was really interesting. So I think just keeping an open mind, and whilst also keeping the kind of Keep keeping the bills paid as well in whatever way I can. 
um, is, is how I want to continue. And I think generally just doing doing exciting things and, and keep remaining true to myself as well, and just and producing work that I find personally interesting. I think that's the most important thing for me. Yeah. Uh, well, it looks like you're you just got raw energy and raw talent. You could. Uh, pretty much point it in any direction and be successful it looks like from the looks of things. I hope so. <laughs> what, so yeah. where, where can people find um, more info on you and where do you generally direct people if they you know they've heard about you and they want to they want to find out more? Well um, mainly my website which is um, missaniella.com and I also have a blog on there which is which 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 will kind of keep you updated with anything that I'm doing or any kind of thoughts and, and also essays that I write once in a while if you are really bored and want to read those <laughs> but um but also I found that using Facebook has been really useful to um to keep updates going um to people that may have kind of come across my work in different places and so I keep doing updates on Facebook as well um, my page is if you basically search Miss Aniela the page there um, comes up um, and also on Flickr as well which is um, well I made myself a bit of a problem by giving myself a URL which has my surname in so it's flickr.com slash photos slash endabish but if you search Miss Aniela on Facebook uh, sorry on Flickr then you can then you can find my work on there and that's where I usually post my new work. Gotcha. And what? And what about Twitter? I am on Twitter. I've not got. <laughs> I've not got fully into it, but I'm. I am on there, so you can just search Miss Aniela, and I'm on there as well. And um, I'll I'll sometimes post kind of links to blog updates or Facebook updates. So generally, there's a whole kind of network of stuff going on with these social networking sites, which is easy to kind of drop in on and, and leave a comment. Or if you have any questions, you can just email me or whatever. And I also have a mailing list. So if you did want to join that, then just a quick email and that, and uh, you're on there. So, so yeah, that's um, usefulness of the internet and keeping people updated. I'm exhibiting in Miami, actually, this year. Um, and also at the Buenos Aires Photo Fair. So updates for both of those things will be on my site as well. Oh, so it's really exciting. It's my first exhibition in America. Oh, wow. Cool. I'll have to, I've been looking for a reason to get to Miami. Maybe this is it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, definitely. Very good. Very good. Uh, Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time uh, out of your day to chat with me. This has been... Thank you very much, Frederick. Uh, it's been inspirational, and uh, you're going you're gonna to mess up the rest of my day again because I'm still in your, 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 <laughs> your photos here. So I would, I, would, I would suggest that the This Week in Photography audience, if you haven't done so during this interview... Um, or if you haven't done so yet, definitely head over to, to Natalie's Flickr stream. You know, you'll find the links to all the things that she mentioned in our show notes on twiplog.com, um, or just Google her, and uh, you'll, you can find out everything you need to know. She's <laughs> easily findable on many social networks. So yes. Na Natalie, thanks again, and um, uh, have a great day. Thank you very much, and yourself. And we're back from the interview. And uh, that leaves us with some listener questions for the remainder of the show. So for our listener questions, um, actually the first one I was going to hand off to Steve. Uh, it's from uh, Travis Rennie, and it has to do with old film that he's discovered that's yet to be developed. Do you want to take that, Steve? Oh, sure. Um, let's see here. Um, well, uh, Travis uh, was sort of lucky enough to find an old bag, fairly large, filled with 35-millimeter 110 and some other strange-looking format film that he doesn't know about. And he wonders um, if you can still get this stuff processed. 
And I guess, you know, the, the, the long, the short answer is yes. And you definitely want to do it. Who knows what uh, hidden treasure is going to be in that film. If it wasn't sort of baked in the sun and there's still images on it, which I suspect there will be, uh, you know, getting 35 millimeter film processed should not be a big problem. Some of the other formats um, might be harder to do. Ultimately, if all else fails, you know, you can pay a photographer or friend who still does darkroom perhaps to develop, you know, w figure out a strategy to, for developing the 110 and the other formats. But I think if Travis looks far enough, um, he should be able to find ways to, to have this stuff developed without spending too much money. And let us know when you do what you're going to find on there. I mean, I, I hope you find wonderful old images of friends and relatives that uh, you never knew existed, which I hope is, is what's on there. Or, or the long lost, like the Zapruder stills yeah. or, or something. You know, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, I was kind of wondering when I looked at this question too, I mean, Steve, do you have a sense of, of how many labs are starting to disappear at this point? I mean, what's, what's kind well, of happening in that realm? Yeah, I, I, I certainly probably don't have any insight more than, than you guys, but uh, definitely um, it's it's slowed down. Now, I'm in New York City, so it'll be the last place that will eventually go. There's a lot of photographers here still shooting film, and you know, the, most of the labs that survived are doing mostly digital. Well, at least they're doing a lot of digital. Um, you can still get film, film process. But, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, as this... As the current, you know, we lost Irving Penn, as the current generation of photographers that still are clinging to film for, for good reasons, because it, it, it still is fantastic. As they go away, um, eventually, you know, it, film will go away. There's, there's no question about that. I've actually seen a sort of resurgence of um film usage in some of my Flickr groups. A lot of young sort of um, young teenage photographers are are going back to film. Uh, Lomo and, you know, toy cameras and really experimenting with um, different techniques because uh, I think that it's sort of a backlash against um, all the photoshopping and digital. Like they want to return to something that's real. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Lisa. And I've noticed it too in, in classes that, you know, sort of young people coming in for the same reasons that anyone that got into photography before digital, the magic of the film and the processing and so on. And and I have no doubt, you know, that that is true. But I, I suspect that uh, eventually when it's no longer economically feasible to indulge in still having that stuff available maybe 20 years down the line. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. But I, I, I'm sort of guessing that even though people are into it in that way, I don't know if the market's going to be enough. And with the technology, who knows what it's going to be like then. Um, my guess is that uh, it would really be a, a very hard-to-do, expensive thing to, to use film. Mm -hmm. But who knows? <laughs> yeah. Find a slide projector. That's going to be a fun part, too. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> uh, well, our, our last listener question that we have here today um, actually dovetails with our, uh, with our poll question from earlier. And, again, Lisa and I were talking about this earlier, and so I wanted to bring that back up. It's um, HDR, is it fake, is kind of the summary. It's, um, oh, gosh, I hope I'm not going to tear this name up here. Uh, Jory, J-O-E-R-I, uh, Mueller. 
from the Netherlands submitted this and uh, it says I'm very interested in landscape and HDR photography lately I've been reading a lot of negative things about HDR photography saying that it's too fake and doesn't uh, portray the photographer's capabilities class or skill so I'd like to know where you guys uh, stand on HDR photography um, and Steve you know we were discussing it a minute ago um, personally my stance is I kind of like it on both ends of the spectrum um, I've seen and, and done some surrealistic HDR photography that I, I think is beautiful in its own way um, but it's certainly, you know, surreal, but, you know, to say the very least. Um, I think what I tend to prefer, of course, is using HDR for realism. You know, in those cases where you have intense contrast that a camera can't capture, but your eye has more of a sense of it in real life. So trying to bring that photo in line with what your eye would have seen, to me, is a real challenge in HDR and, and a really fantastic use of it. But uh, so, I, I, again, I tend to fall on both ends of the, uh, of the spectrum. And I think labeling it as fake is actually kind of harsh. In a way, uh, again, because if it's being used in a creative sense. But, um, oh, yeah. but Lisa, we, you you had had a strong opinion on this before. So. Uh, so as you know, I was really, really opposed to HDR photography. But I guess that was mainly because I was uh, intimidated by the process and because I hadn't really uh, physically gone out and, and done it. So over the last six months, I've actually really enjoyed learning about it and and going out and shooting a lot of night shots and experimenting with different lenses. I, I've been using the 15mm fisheye to shoot some cool sort of architectural landscapes. And um, I mean, you can look at my, my HDRs. I've done sort of a combination of, of stuff that's both sort of realistic and then stuff that's like a little bit whacked out. Um, but, but obviously, I mean, it's like anything else you can, you can have your own style and taste and, and do what you want with it. Um, I mean, it's not like, like HDR photography is, is fake. I, I think that's like you said, a little bit harsh. And, um, what I didn't like about it before is just, you know, people that, that used it in one way. But I mean, it, it also means, like you said, like, pick, you know, where you have a strong contrast and, and that's what I'll use it for um, most of the times, so, you know, you wouldn't even notice. It's just a building's dark, the sky's too bright. So do an HDR. Mm -hmm. I've used it quite a bit, actually, with panoramic photography with a 15 millimeter um, or actually an eight millimeter fisheye. Um, I'll combine HDR and uh, the eight millimeter for doing, um, you know, 360 degree VRs and put all that together. It can be a real challenge to assemble them sometimes, but uh, it does really make for a pretty fascinating image. Uh, one sample I've seen online some years ago, and I'll have to fish around and see if I can find it, was a really interesting use of uh, 360-degree VR and um, uh, HDR photography together in such a way that the VR um, software would iris down the image as you spun the image around in the viewer. So in other words, if you looked out a window, it would iris down and the room would become dark and you would see the sun, you know, or the outdoor scene. And then as you spun the image around back into the room where it was much darker, it would blow out the window again, uh, very much the way a still image would have been done, but you would see it the way your eye sees it. So it was actually kind of a recreation of what your eye does when you're in a dark room looking out a bright window and back in a room. It, and it was, it was a hybrid combination of a special VR player and the HDR, you know, data to make that happen. It's not... Not something you can do with QuickTime VR, for instance, by default. But uh, quite neat. Yeah, that sounds really. Uh, that sounds like the future. I mean, I, I'm sure that technique will be incorporated into you know future sort of sensor, uh, digital sensors and cameras. So we'll just have to wait. 
Well, moving on to our last segment of the show this week. Um, hopefully we can all keep it together here long enough. We have our picks of the week. And um, Steve, you want to start off? Well, um, I put in uh, Singray Neutral Density Filter. And uh, full disclosure, as all bloggers are going to have to disclose, um, I got one of these filters uh, from the, the company, Singray. Um, they're very expensive, and that's the only re reason I didn't buy it, because I don't have the money. Uh, I'm borrowing it to try it out. I've got a workshop this weekend uh, in the Smoky Mountains, and uh, a, a variable uh, neutral density filter will allow me um, when I'm sort of photographing, you know, water especially, where I, I love the idea of slow exposures in water and what you can get from it. And sometimes when you go to your lowest ISO, uh, you're, there's still too much light to give you a shutter speed that uh, is slow enough to give you the kind of uh, otherworldly um, uh, patterns of water that you get in slow exposures. But with with two to eight stops of variable, dens variable density, neutral density, I can really experiment and get any kind of uh, shutter speed and really see what works best. And when in the field, I want to give myself as many options, particularly when there's nothing moving in front of me. I can just stand there and, and just experiment. And uh, it's also good not to go below the lowest ISO um, that your camera allows. I know with Nikons, you have... Uh, many of them are 200 as being the sort of the sweet spot where you're going to get the best expo the best uh, resolution and, and digital file. Um, when you go to the, one of the low settings, you're actually compromising a little bit, unlike film where the, the lowest ISO film. And that's why the manufacturers won't put 150, 25. They call it L3 to 1. And that's because um, they admit that it's not going to give you the same quality. So with a neutral density filter in place, I can really down my exposure, play with different slow shutter speeds, and see see what happens. So we'll see when I'm up in the Smoky Mountains if there's any uh, water shots to be had. I'm going to try it out. What uh, what part of you of the uh, Smokies you're going to? I just I was um, asked because I was born in the foothills of the Smokies. Oh my goodness! Actually, well, so. maybe we're going to go to the log cabin that you were born in. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. If this is a, a Nikon American Photo Mentor Series workshop. Usually, you get a lot of people to it. I think I fly into. Not even sure where I'm flying into. All I know is I've been told it's absolutely beautiful there, and I'm really looking forward to it because the itinerary is going to take us to all the the the, the best vistas and Wonderful. places there. It is. They call them the Rocky Mountains of the East for good reason. So oh, can't wait. Yep, yep, it's beautiful. Look out for bears. Oh. Um, we're gonna bring Lisa back here and go right into her pick. So, right, Lisa. So, how about your pick of the week? My pick is the Photo Jojo book. Um, I am loving sort of DIY projects right now, and this book is amazing if you want to, some of the things, get out of a photo rut, construct a photo mural, make a photo chandelier, attach your camera to your dog, and who doesn't want to do that? So this is a great book for, for sort of cheap photo projects. Sounds quite cool. Well, hoping to keep all three of us together here for the remainder of the show, um, I will quickly th blow through my pick here. And it's not a lot to talk about anyway. Um, we'll put a link in the show notes for this, uh, but it's called a Tilt Shift Day at the Magic Kingdom. Um, Tilt Shift Day at the Magic Kingdom. Um, in the past, I've recommended a few uh, great uh, kind of stop action um, 
uh, videos created with uh, tilt shift lenses. And uh, this is another fantastic one that's just, again, a full day at, at uh, Disney's Magic Kingdom. Beautifully shot, very entertaining to watch. Um, look for a link in the show notes. So next week's show, I hope I'll have Alex back as well. Um, and we should be hosting at the Twit Cottage where things move a lot more smoothly. And we also have live video when we do that. So those of you who might want to watch the show being recorded uh, would be uh, visit live.twit.tv. Um, and that's uh, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on Mondays. Uh, so uh, coming between weeks, uh, I don't think we have any special plans uh, for this coming week as far as uh, Just know, more uh, inserts. Just more good stuff. More good stuff, definitely. And uh, I think we'll uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up here. Let me yeah. um, I'll pass I just, it to you, I Steve. Just, I just wanted to give a shout-out. I did a workshop at the International Center of Photography this past weekend, uh, and uh, we had, uh, as part of the workshop, uh, Emma Blee, who's a Twipper from Australia, ah. who kind of you know found me out, uh, I think, through, through Twip. So, wow, that was really kind of cool. I was really happy about that. And uh, who knew, you know, Twip is... Uh, as a, a marketing vehicle. So oh, yeah. she, she, she's a great photographer in Australia. She's got a lot of ideas for things. And it was just, uh, it was nice to, to um, meet an actual Twipper. I hope to meet more of you um, in the, the upcoming weeks. I'm going to be at PhotoBus Expo on the 24th doing a session called 10 Steps to Becoming uh, or Toward Becoming a Great Photographer. And uh, just those simple 10 steps. And I guarantee um, they work. Wonderful. So, Hopefully. Where can we find you online, too? Uh, SteveSimonPhoto.com. And will and the schedules Twitter. you were mentioning be on your website there? Yeah, under Lectures Workshops, you should find something there. Very cool. And on the Twitters? Ask Steve Simon. Excellent. Um, I will mention uh, I am planning to be um, at the Educause Conference in Denver uh, the first week in November, I believe about the 3rd to the 7th, and uh, have a pretty full schedule for that, but I'm still hoping to at least have a some kind of informal uh, get together with Twippers that might be in the Denver area. So uh, I will keep you posted on that, both through the show and the blog and Twitter and so on, if that can come to pass. But uh, a few people have already responded to my tweets and saying they'd like to get together. So we'll try and see what we can do either on Tuesday or Saturday or something of that week, first week of November. And um, also I will actually going to save this for a future episode, but I have a, a an app for travel that people might uh, find very, very interesting uh, if you're headed to China anytime soon as a photographer. So uh, we'll talk about that next week. Yeah, certainly. Um, and you can find me at my blog, uh, which is woefully out of date at the moment. Uh, I think the last thing I posted was um, my photography of Obama's uh, inauguration when Steve and I were actually together in D.C. <laughs> so that's how much I have to catch up on. But my blog is halfpress.com, H-A-L-F-P-R-E-S-S.com. But you can find me more often on Twitter as Half Press. And uh, it's been a rocky show from a technical standpoint. Um, I hope... Uh, Hope you all enjoy what we finally put together. I think it's just going to be a little bit of a different show for once, but our our frequent listeners will recognize the difference here. So uh, hopefully we'll be back in order next week, uh, and again on live video as well. And uh, on that note, what do we do? We take the lens cap off. I think we got to take that lens cap off and yeah. get out to shooting. Take it off. Click, click. Have fun. Yeah.